Come check us out. Hand the card out. It's the first, first way that we evangelize. So use the cards and invite people to experience the cross. And then there's just a word of encouragement every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's all it is, to encourage you to get through the week. Electronically, it can come to one of your devices and be a word of encouragement. That's all it's designed to do. So sign up for the blog if you'd like. Now open your Bibles to the gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. We're only going to look at 46, 47, and 48 in chapter 9. Chapter 9. We've had the first passion prediction. We've had the transfiguration. We've had the second passion prediction. We've had the healing of the the demon-possessed boy right after the transfiguration. We've got a lot that's going on here. And now we have this strange passage right in the middle. And we have to understand it in its context. What's going on in the passage? What does God want us to know 2,000 years later? How does this speak to us today? Remember, there's three things in every sermon. What does the text say? What does the text mean? And what does the text require of me? You need to hear that in all three sermons. And then you need to get into, when you're reading the scriptures, you need to go into the story. You have to enter into the story and become part of the story. Remember, your story is his story, right? That's history. God is writing history. And all of it is leading us to the return of Jesus. When all of it comes to completion and ultimate fulfillment. And that's what God is leading all of us to. But your story is part of it. So when you enter into his story... You ask some questions. Where, where does this speak to my heart? And just always remember, when you go into one of the biblical stories, it's easy for me to make this comment on the front end, which helps you as you're reading it to try to figure out where do you fit. You're never Jesus. So it makes it easy. So when you read this passage, don't think you're Jesus who came down from the mountain, but think of yourself as the three disciples who are arguing for the greatest position. When we understand who we are in the story, it helps us apply it to our lives 2,000 years later. Remember, this is an unchanging word, a true word that never changes, but it is applicable in a changing, continually changing cultural context. But the only way to understand Scripture is within its context. And that's what we're going to do here. Okay? Under the heading, the greatest, here now, the Word of God, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant infallible word. Let's pray. Father, it is no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. No one came here hoping to hear the imagination of a man. Everyone is here, hungry and thirsty for the revelation of God. Speak now. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than Jesus. Meet us in our place of deepest need, but not as we prescribe those needs, but rather as you do. Make it a word of salvation, whether inside this sanctuary or out on the internet. We always know that some are outside looking in and we ask that this would be a moment of salvation. This word would speak life 
to those who are without spiritual life today. And Lord, for those in storm winds, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest, all things to all people that some might be saved. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. It's a very simple passage and a very simple understanding, yet it's deep. And we'll look at some deep spiritual truths, but we're going to launch right out. Three headings that are very instructive for us today. The first heading is the heart of the disciples. What was their heart? It was totally different than, than the heart of Jesus. Listen, listen. Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They see the revealed glory of God. And just notice the difference of the the hearts as they come down from the mountain. Jesus is coming down from the mountain with a heart that is focused on his crucifixion and his suffering. Peter, James, and John come down with a heart that's focused on chief seats. Who's the greatest? It's remarkable. But we want to be careful that we don't look at that passage and go, Phew, thank goodness I'm not like Peter, James, and John. That'd be a bad thing. Why? We are like them. That's the whole point of the passage. That's how it transcends 2,000 years. We get into the story and we see who we are. We're not Jesus, so we have to be them. These are guys that walked with them two and a half years and they're still wondering who's the greatest. It's remarkable, but it's truth and it helps us grow. It, it is applicable today. So once we see the heart of the disciples, then we're going to go right to the gospel. What's the heart of the gospel? Wait till you see this. This is remarkable what Jesus does. Another one of those object lessons for the disciples then and the disciples today. And then finally, number three, the heart of Jesus. Here's the key. Let the little children come again today for baptism. It's just... And, and then to see Andrew just out of body, out of body experience, running around crazy. It's the great, but that's the greatest joy. Let the little children come. That's the church. You know, people say to me sometimes, they really do. They say to me, you, you know, sometimes you hear baby, you hear noises and stuff. Doesn't that ever bother you? Say, Are you kidding me? Let me, let me know I'm alive. I love this. I was telling Mark and Caitlin this morning, I said, here, you're holding Andrew and, and, and you're holding Annabelle. And so were Kim and I 20 years ago. And their, first, their, their two are 20 months, 21 months apart like Brock and Jenna. And now they're in college. It happens like that. It's gone. It's over. So let them come. Let them run. It's just, it's the joy and the laughter of the Lord. And we are just so thankful to have a church that is growing with young families and kids everywhere. Everywhere. When we came here and we launched, we, the only children were, were ours. We didn't, have, we didn't have any kids. They were just, and, and now to see what God is doing, we're just grateful. So the heart of Jesus. We're going to launch out into deep water, let our nets down for a catch. Let's take a look. The heart of the disciples. Two passion predictions. You know what that is, right? The Son of Man must, be, must suffer, must be rejected, must die and raise it. Two times he, he, two times he says that. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see the glory of the Lord revealed. They see the glory of the Lord. And now this. Listen to this. 946. An argument. Let, let's pause on that for just a moment. Not an argument like you might think of you and I, uh, an argument here. This is more of a, a reasoning. They're, they, listen to what they're doing. They've come down off the mountain. Peter, James, and John had that special experience. They come down, and now the 12 of them, because they're, they're, they're trying to sort it out. 
we know, and Peter, James, and John come down and said, you, you have no, you can't believe it. we just saw. The kingdom is here. So now they're thinking, okay, who, who's going who's to be next to Jesus? We know we have these 12 seats. Who's, where are we sitting? I, I, I think I should be sitting right next to Jesus. No, 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 no. Don't you remember that I walked on water? Yeah, we do remember that. And then you sank and he had to save you. And you keep putting your foot in your mouth. So it ain't you. It ain't you, Peter. And James and John, we're the sons of thunder. It's got to be us. Right and left, it's got to be. No, it's not you. No. And they're, and they're, they're dialoguing. But notice... There's 12 of them speaking, and in order to get to the answer, only one of them can be at the top. So one of them's looking to look down at the other 11. Not, we're going to be the the 12 of us will be the greatest. No, 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 no. Which one of us is the greatest? What an incredible misunderstanding of the gospel. But that's the heart of the disciples, and that's our heart too. What are they looking for? So that we can be clear. I know we've hit these subjects before. Jesus makes, uh, Peter makes the great Christological confession for Jesus. You are the Christ. What did that mean? The son of the living God. What did that mean? He spoke truth, but he didn't know what it meant. What are they looking for? In order to ask for these kinds of seats, they're not asking for it in heaven. They're asking for it now. They are convinced the kingdom is now. The throne of David will be reestablished in Jerusalem. Rome will be removed and national prominence will be regained. Who's going to sit closest to Jesus? They're looking for a military Messiah and a commander Christ. That's all. They did not understand Psalm 22. They did not understand Isaiah 53 and all of the Old Testament that preached and predicted and promised that the Messiah would come and lay his life down for his people. And how do we know they still don't get it? You, you, you won't believe the next one. We have to go to Matthew. Remember sometimes to put the whole story, you, go, you have four evangelists, right? You have the four evangelists. You've got to sometimes put the stories together to get the whole picture. Right before the, right before the triumphal entry, right before that, And right after Jesus gives his third passion prediction, he says for the third time, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day. He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem. Pause. Matthew 20, 20 to 21. This is true. This is us. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine, these are the sons of thunder, may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. In the context, it's almost hard to believe, but don't think ill of mother. Why? Isn't that your goal? Mother, don't you want your children sitting at the right and the left of Jesus? Of course you do. Every godly mother and father, that's your goal. You ask that every day. Oh, God, granted, they would sit so close to you. Put them right next to you. Put your arms to keep them close. I don't want them drifting. So it's a great request. But it's the boys. It's the sons of thunder who know better. Stop this. 
This is not why I've come. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the kingdom of God. You're still thinking fleshly. You're still thinking as if you're living in the world. You're missing the whole point. Three things. Four things. This is, in the world we call these things advantages, would we not? Here's, here's, here's what they're looking for. Power. That's an advantage in the world, isn't it? Yes, it is. The whole philosophy was built on that. Only the strong survive. You know that. Prestige. It's an advantage in the world. Position. Privilege. But you know what these are in the kingdom of God? They're empty advantages. They don't mean a thing. Why? They don't exist. Because there's only one person with power, prestige, and position, and privilege, and it's Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no tier system. Who's the greatest? Jesus is. That's it. It's the whole point of understanding the truth of the gospel. So the heart of the disciples, the heart of the disciples, their hearts are beating for themselves. Okay? That's, that's number one. Let's go a little further here. Understand how it's beating. We, we have a category called sinful pride. What is sinful pride? It's the sin of what we call unholy comparison. But let's just be clear on how this started. The great contrast is, is we find the great contrast of pride and humility where? And we find it in the heavenly realms, right? With the fall of the fallen angels led by Lucifer. The pride of the angels who no longer wanted to actually be the, the great servants of God. They wanted to be God, above God themselves. So the pride of the angels that fell and the humility of God himself. We'll see that in our third section. But it enters into the garden with Satan when he says to Eve, what? You're, it's, you, it's not enough to be made in the image of God. You can be God. You can be just like God. So he gets Eve to compare her life to God's life. And she starts to think, well, yeah, that would even be better. We could actually be God. So what is sinful pride? It's the sin of unholy comparison. But be careful. Because some people say we never should compare. That would be unbiblical. There's a biblical way to compare. Listen, how would you know how to reflect the character of Christ if you weren't comparing the life that he lived in the gospel accounts to your own? So of course there has to be a way to do this. But there's a way to do it that's biblical. That's loving and kind and affirming. And it helps you grow. Look at Hebrews 6.12. Ready? We do not want you to become lazy. That's a good word. But to imitate. So here it is. You're to imitate. Well, you can't compare without imitating. You have to be looking closely. But we want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So what is this about? You're to take a look at those who are walking worthy of the Lord. When Paul says this, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why is it okay for Paul to say that and, and, and for me not to? Paul said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you hear preachers or pastors saying that, get out, go somewhere else. Because the first thing I would say to you, don't imitate me at all. And if you look close enough, get as far away from me as you can. Why? Because we all know the truth. We know who we are. We know what we do. We think things we shouldn't think and say things we shouldn't say and do things we shouldn't do. But Paul, under the inspiration, said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. But there is a healthy way to look at people. Can't you picture people in your own mind right now, in your own mind, who you consider to be humble, servants of God? Of course you do. We all do. You say, you know, I'd like to find out more about that. I'd like to be more like that. There's nothing wrong. That's a biblical way to live. 
But when we're making these unholy comparisons, and we'll talk about that in a moment, what that looks like, but this is okay. There's a way to do this. But here's the key. How do you, you know there's only two ways to see people? There's only two ways. When you get to the deepest possible level, you see them as mirrors or you see them as windows. What does it mean to see somebody as a mirror? What do you do in a mirror? Take a look. You ask, who's the fairest of them all? You know the, you know, you know the Disney movie, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? If you see people as mirrors, and I look at Ernie, I look at that mirror, I'm looking back at myself, and I want to see where I measure up above and beyond. I want to I look, look at Brian. I want to see where I measure. He's a mirror. That's, that's the sinful part of who we are. That's the challenge. That's the problem. That's what the Pharisees did. I thank thee, O God, I'm not like other men. So we're not to be looking at people as mirrors. How should we look at them? As windows. Windows of what? We look inside of their hearts into God's grace and God's glory. That's how we see them, as windows. That's the key. And There's only two ways to look at people. Two ways. That's it. So if you're looking at people and, and you're, you're dealing with this issue of comparison, that's a mirror. You're looking into a mirror. You're looking at yourself. That's why we understand that every single person, every single person in the world, it doesn't matter who they are, where they live, it doesn't matter what they do, has value and dignity and worth. Why? They're made in the image of God. That's why you have something in common with every person that you ever speak to. Every person has been made in the image of God. Every person has value and dignity and worth. Everyone. So we look into them as windows. And in every single person, if we look closely enough, we see the grace and the glory of God. That's the point. The disciples aren't doing that. How are the disciples looking at each other? Peter's looking at the other 11 as a mirror and going, man, better than these guys. And they're looking at Peter, man, better than him. And that's all they're doing. Not one of them saw inside to the grace of God that was none of them. And we, we do the same. Two quick passages, Galatians 5.26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. You know that's the greatest challenge in the church? It's the number one destroyer of any kind of community and harmony in the church. That's all. And then finally, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing. Listen to this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's vain glory. You've heard that term. What a horrible way to live. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Rather in humility. You know that's the, that's, that's the number one. You think about God. Think about all the attributes of God. What would you say would be the, the, the number one? I mean, we could go on and on forever. But isn't humility almost overwhelming when you think that God came out of heaven, took on flesh, and came into this world? Is there any attribute greater than that kind of humility? It's almost hard to believe. See, it didn't start with a baby in a manger. It didn't start there. The world thinks it started there. So everybody in the world celebrates Christmas, right? They get stuff, they give stuff, say it's a great holiday, we get a day off. No. Started in eternity past in the eternal council of the triune God where Jesus was promised to save sinners from their sin. He stepped down off of the throne of grace. What they saw in a, in a tiny little glimpse on the Mount of Transfiguration is all they see in heaven 24-7. There is no night. The Son of God the brightness of the glory, the Shekinah glory. It's an amazing, amazing thing to even consider. So Paul says what? Rather in humility, value others above yourself. That's the hardest thing to do. 
We're always looking at mirrors and we're trying to find out where we fit. But he says, no, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What's humility? Let me give you the simplest definition that, that I've ever, ever, ever been able to come up with. There's lots of ways to look at it. And let me tell you, there's, there's two things on pride. There's, there's like a balance beam. There's a good pride and a bad pride. Be, be, know that. There's a very good pride. Are you proud to, to, to be a, a Christian and thankful to God? Are you proud to be an American? Are you proud to grow up in a Christian home? And all, th- those are, that's good pride. There's nothing wrong with those things. You're not comparing yourself to anyone. You're thanking God for what he's given you. But then there's an unhealthy pride. Same with humility. Be very careful. You know, there's a self-deprecating humility that doesn't work. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm, I'm just a doormat. Oh, sh- pause for just a moment, please. Do you have any idea who you are? First of all, you're never a doormat because you're made in the image of God. But now you've been raised from death to life. So guess what? You're a kid of the king. You have nobility. You've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Understand who you are. But understand how to keep it in its context. So what is humility? It's not thinking less of yourself. You can't do that. You're his. But it's thinking of yourself less. Stop being preoccupied with yourself. That's humility. And it's the hardest of all of the graces to be developed in the heart. Because you're constantly thinking of yourself. So that's Paul's admonition. That's the, so that the heart of the disciples are whose hearts? Ours. Number two, check this out. Here's the heart of the gospel. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Do you know what that is right there from the beginning? That's called the position of honor. Okay, a couple things. Ready? Ready? Had a little child, right? So here, let's, let's take a look at the children first. Okay, so let's just compare two I'll just because we had them here. So you have a little child who can stand and you can still hold. So let's, I don't know if you could hold Andrew. You have to catch him first, but you got Andrew. Now you got the tank. The tank can stand, but you can't hold him anymore. It's too big. He's too big. So it's not the tank. It's not that size. It's here. It's Andrew. So you have to stay with me on this because you've got to get inside the context of what, what's written here. Jesus takes a child old enough to stand, but small enough to hold. Go to, go to Mark. Go to Mark 9.36. Sometimes you've got to put the whole picture. He took a little child, had him stand, so old enough to stand, not a baby, not an infant, Taking him in his arms, not, not, not tank size. So you, so you got a little Andrew, you got a little guy. Question, how does, how does the child, remember, Jesus is painting a picture of the gospel, he's given an object, how does the child get next to Jesus? Jesus puts him there. There, I've just preached the gospel. Enough said? How do you get in? Jesus brings you in. How do you get next to Jesus? He puts you there. You, now, stay with me, watch, it's going to get better. I want you to understand this passage, and the only reason I'm going to mention the next thing, I don't want to go super deep, but I just want to mention something. In the ancient languages, there were certain things that they used to emphasize points. Repetition, aspects of syntax. There's something called step parallelism, and I want you just to see it in this. It's not deep. It's really simple to see. You're going to see Jesus make a comparison, and he's going to... We wrote a, this, this month's message, message, if you get the good news, we're writing apologetically now. This month's message is Jesus never said I am God. That's the title. He never said I'm God. He never used those words. You can't open the Bible and read Jesus said I'm God. But he said it in every other way, right? 
right? So, so we know. he says it here. Watch what he does. He compares the child to himself, then himself to the one who sent. Watch the step up. Watch what he does. Ready? Back to the passage, Luke 48, uh, 948. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. But now he steps up. Now what is he claiming when he steps up? And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who, for he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Step parallelism is a key in understanding that Jesus claims to be God here as well. Whoever welcomes the child welcomes me. Enough said. That would have been a good story. That would have been a great message. That would have taught the disciples what they needed to understand. Jesus said, no, 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 let's go further. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. I am God. The Father and I are one. Just another way of Jesus. See, that's what we're trying to teach the skeptical unbeliever. There isn't a passage he doesn't claim to be God. You just have to understand how to read it and how to come to it and understand what he's saying. He claims to be God in every breath that he takes, every word that he speaks. He is God incarnate, okay? From there, this is, I think this will open you up to a little deeper understanding. Ready? Mark 10, 14. We've got to go back to Mark. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. This is called a holy anger. He's angry. He's upset. He can't believe these guys. How can you be... He said to them, and remember, Jesus didn't hear them arguing. He understood. He has omniscience. He understands what they're saying. That happens over and over again in the gospel accounts. He said to them, let the little children come, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So imagine, it was like today. You had all the children up here. You had this whole roll-off tribe, and they're all up here, and they're running around, and they're everywhere. And the, and, and, and the disciples say, no, 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 get them down. Get them down. Sit them down. Sit them down. Shh. Jesus says, what's the matter with you? Do you have any idea who they are? To such as these belongs the kingdom. So now here's what you're thinking. Ready? I know exactly what you're thinking. The same as me. Here's what you're thinking. What, what is it about the child? Jesus is making an object lesson. What is it about the child? So the first thing we want to think about is trust, right? Think about trust. Childlike trust. That's the first. We know that they trust, right? Little children. They trust. They hold your hands and they trust you. And that's true. That's good. Childlike dependence. They, they, they depend. They depend on you. They have no choice. Dependent. Jesus is teaching that too. And how about obedience? Sometimes. But far more obedient at Andrew's age than the tank sometimes, right? As the older they get, the more opinionated they get, and the more input they want to have. And so is that true of the child? Yes. Is that the message? No. No. Why? That would not have dealt with what the disciples were discussing. What were the disciples discussing? Their prominence. What were the disciples doing? They were parading their performance around. I'm greater than you. Look what I've done. No, I'm greater than you. So there, so there has to be something else about the child. Is there? course there is in the cultural context back in israel in the roman in the ancient world the greco-roman world the context for children was what they were not really valued you you, didn't teach the torah till they were 12 you had child sacrifice going on all sorts of places in the pagan world the only child that was attractive was your own so they were expendable if you will so Jesus is teaching a deeper truth. What is he saying? They're, they're unimportant. 
they're, 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 they're unimportant. Okay, yeah. What else? They're unaccomplished. Oh, stay with me. You know how some parents, and if it's you, that's good. That's okay. You know how some parents, you drive around, you see a little bumper sticker. Oh, my little child's on the honor roll at the elementary school. And you just praise in the Almighty. They, they, didn't, they didn't go around Jerusalem in their little cars with the little bumper sticker that said, Oh, my child's on the honor roll at Jerusalem Elementary. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. The child was unaccomplished. The child was unimportant, and the child was absolutely unworthy. Do you understand the message? Yes, childlike trust and dependence and childlike obedience and humility, yes. But what does Jesus have to counter in the hearts of the disciples? This child has done nothing to earn my favor. You're trying to figure out where you fit because of what you've done. You've missed the whole point of the gospel. I'm putting a picture before you. This is a type. This is a type of the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know your spiritual bankruptcy. You have nothing to offer God. That's the child. That's what he means. It's not just childlike trust and obedience and faith. That's not enough. That's not enough. The child has done nothing, has earned nothing, is worthy of nothing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't you understand the gospel? It has nothing to do with you. And he knows they have to get it before he goes. Because they're the only ones that are going to teach it and lay the foundation. And they don't have it yet. But he knows something's coming. And that's the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and Pentecost is coming and they're going to get it. Now they're going to live it imperfectly. They're still going to mess up, but they're going to get it. Okay? You got the picture? Remember, how'd the child get there? Jesus put him there. All because of Jesus. So you're brought in all because of Jesus. And even as an adult with all of your accomplishments and all of your worthiness and all of your importance, means nothing in the kingdom of God. Are we clear? Nothing. Okay? Mark 10, 15, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child. So now you see the picture. You have to receive it by grace through faith. You cannot parade your performance. You cannot do that. If you don't receive it like a child, you'll never enter it. Remember? Rock of ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's the point of the child. Nothing in the child. It's all in Jesus. That's the gospel. And finally, what's the heart of Jesus? We touched it at the beginning, but let's just hit it here. Philippians 2, 6, and, and, and 6 to 11. Listen to this. This is the exact opposite of Satan himself. Lucifer, the fallen chief angel and all of his demons. Remember the dragon swishes his tail in Revelations? I think it's 12. I could be wrong. The tail is swished and a third of the stars fall. So a third of the angels, how many? We don't know how many, but a third of them are cast out. Some are bound immediately. The rest are here. They're here. Only one Satan. He's not omnipresent. There's only one, but there are demons everywhere. They're here. It's real. We battle against spiritual powers of darkness. It's real. But there's, there's the huge contrast. The heart of 
Satan and the heart of Jesus. Here it is. You know the passage. Let's just be brief. Who being in very nature God. Just say it. Jesus is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, blessed Trinity. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Not something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking... That's the whole point. The child. The child has nothing. Jesus made himself nothing. By what? Taking on our nature. Taking on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself, even unto death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, where every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God be the glory. Here's Satan, Jesus. Pride, Satan, humility of our Lord. And Jesus says, if you don't get this, if you don't get this, you're not going to get the kingdom because you don't understand. So I'm going to give you the greatest picture of the kingdom. This little child has accomplished nothing, has virtually no value, except to his parents possibly, to these are the kingdom. Mm, mm, mm. You imagine what they might. You'd, you'd think at this point they never would talk about it again, but they did. Whoever wants to become, here it is, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You know the word, can I just be, I didn't bring up the Greek, but just know that it's not servant. It's, it's never servant. It's never servant. It's doulos. The Greek word doulos. You know what that is? Slave. You know the difference between servant and slave? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Now, we have a lot of baggage in this culture when we look at slave and slavery, and we should have that. We understand that. We understand what's happened in this nation with slavery. It carries a bad context. Commentators say, listen, let's just change that word. That slave thing, that, that's not tracking. Let's go, let's go servant. So we say, I'm a servant of the Most High God. You know what it means to be a servant? That means you can come and go as you please. You do what you want. Right? You serve today, you don't have to serve tomorrow. What's it, what's it mean to be a slave? You don't get a vote. You're owned by him. You've been purchased by his blood. You're a slave. You're a doulos. You're not serving. A slave serves. You're not serving. Service like having a job. You go to your job. You, go to, you can call in sick one day. You do whatever you want. You're serving. Jesus says, you're a slave. You're mine. I bought you. I, I, I own you. I, I purchased you from death to life. You were in the grasp of Satan. You were going to hell. I purchased you. I, a, a brand plucked from the fire. You're mine. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Okay, here's the close. Don't miss this. Because you say, okay, okay, now what? How do I do this? How do I, how do I deal with this pride? I'm dealing with it. So we're all dealing with it. How do we deal with it? How do, how do we... Demonstrate more of the Christ-like humility. How do we do it? Watch. This is beautiful. Colossians 1.27. He's speaking to Israel. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What's the mystery? 
the mystery of the gospel now, exposed to, to, to all people, every tongue, tribe, and nation. God told Abraham, you'll be father of all nations. But which is what? What is the gospel? Christ in you. Oh, don't miss this. Don't miss the hope of glory. So what, what's the key? There's a godly. There's a, there's a way to imitate someone that's godly and, and not compare sinfully. There, there's, and the Bible said that, to imitate those who are walking worthy of the Lord, imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if that's all you're doing, then you're missing the deeper part of what has to take place because the grace that saved you is the grace that sanctifies. So here's the key. You go from imitation, Christ has to get in you. You go from imitation to what? Inhabitation. There's the key. Christ is already in you. There's not a tear system in the kingdom of God. Well, I have a second or third blessing of the Holy Spirit. No, you don't. What's the matter with you people? You've been given the Holy Spirit when you were raised from death to life, and you have it in full measure. You don't get any more later. Listen, you're never going to be loved any more by God than you already are right now. You have been given the full measure of God's love. So you have been given the full measure of the Holy Spirit. But here's now the key. Aren't there times in your life where you sense that God has moved away a little bit? That there's a, a gap? Have, of course you have when you're doing something you shouldn't do. And, and why? Did God move? No, you moved. You moved away from God. You didn't sense the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because you were doing something you ought not to do. So the key in understanding is what? Sensing his presence, the inhabitation, and imitating the character of Christ and watching that spirit continue to grow. You have been inhabited. What does it say in Corinthians? You're not your own. Your body is not your own. You've been bought at a price. Now give your life to the one who purchased you. Humility is a hard thing to get, it, and we all fight with it. It destroys more churches than anything else. Satan, that, that's his number one tool. Pride-filled people. Who's, who's the greatest? What a, what a horrible thing. You know, there is one that's greatest, and that's Jesus. And the rest of us, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So now it's a moment of invitation. What does that mean? You're invited. You're invited into the greatest story that has ever been told that's true. Jesus has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you understand what that invitation means? This is the promise of eternal life. This is the promise. This is the brand that's plucked from the fire. This is the promise that God, because of what God has done, who being in very nature of God, he stepped down from the throne. He took on human flesh, and he was nailed to a cross on our behalf. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful understanding of what he's done. And Jesus, with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, he says to you, come to me. Come to me right now by faith. By faith, come to me and trust in me alone. The gospel has content. You understand? I just preached it. You heard it. Now you have to believe in it. But if all you do is understand it and believe in it, you're no better than the demons. The demons understand and believe, and they shudder. But now you have to take the final step and do what? Trust. Transfer your trust from yourself. You can't work your way into God's faith. You know, there are, there are millions in church today who are parading their performance before God. 
God has no interest in that. Each of us need our performance, right? We, we need each other. But God doesn't measure us on performance. He measures us by the shed blood of the Lamb. Come to Christ. All who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. We're going to pray right now. And if you've never prayed here or on the internet, pray with me. Pray with every heart of the believer in this place this morning. Pray to receive Jesus. This is a moment of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. Pray with me now. Father, for anyone who has never surrendered, controlled to Christ, this is a moment of invitation. This is a moment of salvation. May they pray these words. Oh God, I heard the gospel. I heard the truth. I cannot save myself. My good works, my service, my giving, my talent, my treasure, none of that's going to get me in. I have to become like a child. I have to see that I have nothing to offer God. So, Father, I confess my sins to you. All I bring to, all I bring to my salvation is my sin. But you have said that you've taken that. You've nailed it to the cross. So cleanse me with your blood, O oh God. Cleanse me with your blood. I repent of my sins. I turn away from them and I turn to you. Oh God, help me be what you've called me to be. Give me the Holy Spirit that I might live in a way that's pleasing to you. And if you prayed that prayer, if you prayed that prayer with, with, by grace through faith in your heart, then and God has moved in your life, then we can say to you today that, that you, you have come into the family of faith. But that's between you and God. You know your heart now. You know what the Holy Spirit has done. We have presented the truth to you. Receive it by grace through faith, and salvation is yours. And Father, for the rest of us who've been walking some for decades, 50 years, 60 years, decades, strengthen all of us in our faith. Help us all be what you've called us to be. In Jesus' precious name, amen.